Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. How much do illegal immigrants cost taxpayers? Last month, liberal New York Mayor Eric Adams said migrants will, quote, destroy his city. Thing is, it's not just New York City, it is the entire country. Last week, the House Committee on Homeland Security released a report on how much taxpayers spend on migrants. They cited one study estimating $150 billion per year in government expenditure alone. That's net of taxes, and it comes out to $13,000 per illegal immigrant. That's every single year. A separate study tried to include the millions of migrants currently pouring across the border, pegging that at $451 billion per year in government spending alone. It's worth noting this is just an opening bid, considering the politicians and bureaucrats spending that money have every incentive to hide it. The Homeland Report breaks it down into healthcare costs, law enforcement costs, education, welfare, and costs to private property and border regions. The background here is that compared to legal migrants, indeed compared to the general population, illegal migrants are sicker, lower skilled, less educated, and go on welfare and commit crime all at much higher rates, meaning they pay roughly 20 cents in taxes for every dollar they take from taxpayers, even beyond the social cost of the crime. To give a sense of scale, the report estimates that nearly half the uninsured population, as people without medical insurance, are illegal immigrants. Of course, they still get treated. If you walk into an American hospital without a penny to your name, it is all free under the 1986 Emergency Medical Treatment Act. So the rest of us have to fight with our HMOs, and they get gold-plated treatment, no questions asked, without paying a dime. Of course, illegal migrants know this. According to the report, many show up on dialysis or in need of heart surgery because they know those $100,000 surgeries are all free in the U.S. The report profiled one hospital in Yuma, Arizona, indeed the only hospital in Yuma, Arizona, that is so overburdened with migrants that Americans and legal immigrants have to drive three hours to get specialist care. As the Yuma County supervisor put it, quote, our emergency room was overrun. The problem goes far beyond Yuma. The report cited a hospital in Connecticut where fully one in four of their patients are illegal aliens, quote unquote, with a single migrant's treatment costing more than $1 million. Meanwhile, across the country, so many migrants have addiction issues that Americans and, again, legal immigrants are waiting months to get help. Open border advocates pretend that illegal migrants are the same as legal migrants, who do generally pay their way, don't commit crimes, and work as hard or harder than natives. But there is a world of difference between inviting people into your house and people breaking in like squatters. Given the facts on the ground, uninvited migrants do not remotely contribute what they take. 20 cents on the dollar is not building America, it is bleeding us out all to the benefit of big business who gets cheap workers, passes the costs onto taxpayers, and then complains how Americans are too lazy to work for peanuts. So what is next? Washington is already on track to a $2 trillion deficit, yet they stand ready to pour yet more trillions into every war, every pretend climate crisis, every open border welfare case. We are accelerating into a sovereign debt crisis that Washington almost seems to want at this point. 
There was jubilation in the streets of Buenos Aires as Argentina elected its first libertarian president, the Trump-admiring lion-maned rocker Javier Malay. In yesterday's election, he trounced the left-wing Peronists who have destroyed Argentina with a, quote, parasitic, corrupt, and useless government currently running inflation at 143% per year with a 40% poverty rate and rampant crime. The mainstream media, of course, was triggered. Left-wingers from CNN to BBC to The Washington Post called the devout libertarian Malay, quote, far-right, presumably trying to tar him with the authoritarianism they themselves champion every day. President Trump, meanwhile, warmly congratulated Malay, writing, quote, I'm very proud of you. You will turn your country around and make Argentina great again. Elon Musk posted, quote, prosperity is ahead for Argentina. For his part, the plain-spoken Malay promised that, quote, today the reconstruction of Argentina begins. It's the end of decadence. Now, if you spend any time online, you've probably seen clips of Malay's viral confrontations with, quote, leftards, or perhaps a clip of him flinging away useless ministries, taking up roughly 60% of the Argentinian government. His campaign mascot is a chainsaw in Don't Tread on Me colors. Yesterday was expected to be close fought. Just last week, betting markets were 50-50 on who would win the election. Two weeks ago, the socialist was favored. As you'd expect, local media ran a brutal fear campaign, as they did with Trump. Indeed, Argentine socialists have an army of vote buyers, euphemistically called neighborhood operatives, or punteros. Many of us here in America were waiting for those 3 a.m. burst pipes at the vote-counting centers. Happily, either the vote fortifiers stood down, or the voters overwhelmed them. So what's next? Millet campaigned on abolishing the central bank, calling it a scam to cheat people through inflation, and instead adopting the U.S. dollar as Argentina's currency, replacing the peso, which is currently undergoing its fifth hyperinflation since 1975. Now, the U.S. dollar does have its own problems, considering it's lost roughly 93% of its value since it was entrusted to the Federal Reserve in 1913. Still, that is a lot better than the Argentine peso, which lost 93% of its value in the past five years. His other major campaign promises include gun rights to address Argentina's Chicago-level crime wave and a wholesale slashing of government, which despite being corrupt and useless, employs nearly 30% of the population. It's all good stuff, but alas, Malay comes to office without a majority in Congress, and he will continue to face a brutal local media. So unlike fellow based populist Bukele in El Salvador, who won major reforms, Malay will be facing a Trump-scale swamp. So far, he has been very good at connecting with regular Argentinians, and he will need them to push serious reforms through a hostile Congress and a hostile media. If he is successful, of course, if he can end hyperinflation, rampant crime, and parasitic government that has been ruining Argentina for decades, then yes, he could make Argentina great again and serve as inspiration for pro-freedom movements across Latin America and indeed here in the U.S. Either way, millions of us here in America are excited to see what Malay and the Argentinian people can achieve. A word from our sponsor. IRA is an investment vehicle that can save you a lot on taxes if used correctly. With Unchained, you can hold real Bitcoin in your IRA, and it's the only company where you hold the keys and can verify that your Bitcoin is not being rehypothecated or re-lent out. 
We've recently seen that futures-based ETFs dramatically underperform holding Bitcoin, so why settle for an underperforming asset? Go to Unchained.com and use promo code PETER to get $50 off concierge onboarding. The $2 trillion pot of cheap money known as reverse repo is draining at lightning speed. Will this leave Wall Street scrounging through the couch cushions to buy federal deficits? So what is reverse repo and why does it matter? In short, reverse repo is a way for banks and hedge funds to deposit cash at the Fed just like you would deposit money at your local bank. So those banks and hedge funds are essentially lending the money to the Fed. Why do they do this? Because unlike a regular bank, the Fed cannot default or collapse. After all, they have a giant money printer. Plus, of course, the Fed pays them, which is great fun for Wall Street. So the Fed prints the money, the hedge funds turn around and lend it back to the Fed and collect interest. Meanwhile, for the Fed, it is a great way to mop up extra money so it doesn't bleed out to inflation or push bonds to negative rates. The problem is that if financials are getting worried about bank failures, it can lead to sudden jumps in reverse repo and money parked at the Fed. That's exactly what happened in 2021 as the Fed reimposed bank requirements suspended for COVID, then started paying interest to soak up some of the trillions they had printed. The actual bank collapses came later. All this made reverse repo soar, going from several million dollars to 20 billion by March of 2021. 170 billion by April, 500 billion by May, all the way up to 2.5 trillion by January of this year. At which point there was literally more parked in reverse repos than all of the physical currency in the country. All of that changed dramatically starting in June of this year as reverse repo use plunged even faster than it had risen. At this point, down 1.2 trillion in just six months, to roughly over $900 billion. So what changed? Simple. There is a boatload more government debt sloshing around soaking up that cash. Meanwhile, rates are rising on treasuries as markets get more nervous about the federal government than they do about bank runs. In numbers, over the past year, the Fed has rolled off $1.2 trillion in treasuries, meaning it let them mature without replacing them. That's equivalent to selling them. Meanwhile, the federal government is flooding out deficits almost twice as big as last year. We're close to $2 trillion now per year. All while loan demand dries up as companies get choked thanks to the Fed's panicked rate hikes. So the most recent SLUS survey shows both tightening loan standards and slack demand for loans. So banks don't want to lend, companies don't want to borrow. In short, the government is spending even more as the real economy slows, and both are sucking out the easy money. So what's next? What's next is like so much of what the Fed does today, two and a half trillion in reverse repos was an experiment. We have never been here before. In fact, there's speculation whether the new normal requires a large reverse repo balance, perhaps 750 billion, lest we get a liquidity crunch as excess cash runs out. Of course, it's only speculation since even Fed officials admit they have no idea how much is needed. Note that a treasury auction nearly failed last week, suggesting cash is scarce despite over $900 billion still parked in reverse repo. As always, the Fed is driving at night as fast as possible with no headlights. Nobody knows where the wall is on reverse repo, but at the current pace, we could be there by March. What's for Thanksgiving dinner? Bidenomics. 
As scary as that sounds, there is a silver lining because even as we tiptoe around pronoun lectures from returning college students, if hard times are coming, it means the American family and American communities are about to undergo a Phoenix-like rebirth. Because historically, hard times have meant just that, stronger families, stronger communities, and in America, it's meant a stronger nation. So first up, the hard times. The American Farm Bureau publishes an annual tally of the price of a, quote, classic Thanksgiving dinner. This year, it comes to just over $61, which is up over 30% in just three years. Of course, dinner is just the start. It costs 50% more to gas up the car compared to 2019. And across the board, prices are up almost 25%, meaning just keeping the lights on and the house warm is now a struggle for millions. It gets worse. American families have lost thousands in real income, with real wages falling while prices skyrocketed. Almost half of Americans are carrying credit card debt to buy groceries. 401k hardship withdrawals are up almost 30% on the year, while one in five American workers has a 401k loan outstanding. That's people with jobs. And all of this before the recession hits in full. At the same time, Thanksgiving is also a time to pause and appreciate what we have. Because that's what's going to get us through all of this. Hard times make strong men, and there is a silver lining to every challenge. Americans have been through much worse, even just in this century, from FDR's depression to Wilson's wartime totalitarianism. And each time, we have come out stronger. It starts small, neighbors rediscovering the traditional potluck, sharing burdens with one another. One of the most beautiful children's stories is Stone Soup, a German folktale from the 1500s. It is the story of a hungry traveler who comes asking for food, but nobody has anything to spare. So he pulls out a stone and describes a magnificent recipe for soup. Everybody brings a little something, the carrots, the potatoes, the spices, the cabbage. When it's all cooked, he pulls out the stone, saying the final step is you throw it away. It is amazing indeed what we can do together, and the hard times force it. So what's next? What's next is yes, we are coming into hard times. We know this because the authors of our misery have every incentive to keep going. And because they've captured so much that we are laughably outmatched even as the people come over to our side. But the history of America shows that hard times do make us stronger. We come together, we support each other, we get each other through it. Remember that however enraging or discouraging things can get, the most important things in life are under your control. So your family, especially your kids, your friends, your network, your skills, your reputation, take inspiration from the frontier days from the people who built this country, who went through much worse and came out with strong families who love each other and with tight-knit communities who support each other, along with the prosperous nation that results. As one famous Anglo-American put it, quote, when you are going through hell, keep going. This time, for better or worse, we will all be in it together. As for that college student, it is amazing how needing an allowance from dad teaches good manners. This podcast is supported by our sponsor, MoneyMetals.com, the most trusted bullion dealer and depository in the United States. MoneyMetals is known for its competitive pricing, excellent customer service, and fast delivery of physical gold and silver, as well as their educational content and strong advocacy for sound money policies at the state and federal level. They've set the industry standard for selling, buying, and storing precious metals. If you're looking to help protect yourself against inflation and market turmoil, I hope you'll give them a try. To learn more or to buy your physical gold and silver, go to MoneyMetals.com. 
It's a sad day for Europe's climate clowns, as Germany's Supreme Court rules that potentially $840 billion in government slush funds are unlawful. So first, what happened? On November 15th, Germany's constitutional court, which is the highest in the land, ruled that the constitutional debt break rendered illegal a $65 billion slush fund that was using COVID money for climate projects. The ruling could threaten dozens of similar mechanisms, 29 in all, funding everything from crony semiconductor subsidies to crony climate subsidies to the war in Ukraine. In all, $840 billion of government spending could be at issue, which is equivalent to $4.6 trillion scaled to the U.S. This has now thrown the budget into disarray with the ruling coalition, quote, freezing public spending for the rest of the year. The background here is that Germany has strict debt limits that were imposed after the 2008 crisis to calm the hard-money German public that their government won't hyperinflate the money again. The rules require that new debt must not exceed 0.35% of GDP. In fact, last year Germany ran a budget deficit of 2.5% of GDP, and it is on track to use these off-budget cheats to run a deficit of 2.2% this year, which is about seven times the constitutional limit. Now, Germany's economy is already having a rough time. I've talked about this in a recent video. Thanks to inflation, especially in energy, along with export weakness and a slowing economy that's affected by a flood of cheap Chinese goods as Beijing dumps hundreds of billions into its own struggling manufacturers. All these have taken German factory orders down 15%, In the past two years, German GDP, meanwhile, has only grown in one of the past five quarters, and real wages are down 4% in the past year. In fact, Germans are even cutting back on food, down over 5% from last year. And there is no relief on the way. The entire German economy is forecast to shrink in 2023 and to limp along just over 1%, so barely above population growth, in 2024. Thing is, all that weak growth was with the $840 billion slush fund. So cutting it off could put Germany into even deeper recession. Of course, given a big chunk of that 840 was for the precise climate restrictions that are shrinking the German economy, in the long run it could be a good thing, but in the short run it's going to hurt. So what's next? What's next is given Germany's ruling socialists' ongoing obsession with the climate scam, they will most likely restore the climate spending, taking it from something with weaker lobbyists. In theory, they could raise taxes, but that's a last resort given one of the coalition parties is the pro-business free Democrats. In other words, that could break the governing coalition. Or, of course, they could always fight dirty. There's a loophole in the debt limit for, quote, exceptional emergency or natural disaster. They played that card in 2020 for COVID and last year again for Ukraine. Whether it is loophole or fiscal shell games, my guess is Germany socialists will do everything they can to keep circumventing the fiscal limits of their constitution. We'll see whether Germany's so-called traffic-like coalition of socialists and pro-business parties can survive, but I'm guessing whatever they come up with will come out of the hide of Germany's dwindling industrial base. In last week's newsletter, I wrote about my fear that we are repeating the 1970s stagflation. This week, inspired by Thorsten Pollet, I cover an even worse case 
Germany's 1920s hyperinflation. The Weimar hyperinflation is one of the most talked about episodes today. Of course, paper money hyperinflates all the time. Argentina is currently running 143% inflation, a key reason for Javier Malay's win last week. Before World War I, the German mark had been backed by gold. But during the war, the German government went off gold to run massive deficits. Total public debt went from 5 billion marks in 1914 to 105 billion in 1918. This led to 115% inflation, so about 20% per year. But that was just the beginning. The war had wiped out nearly half of German industry, saddled it with massive reparation payments, and the new socialist government wanted to hike spending. They halted reparation payments to make room, which led France and Belgium to seize Germany's main industrial region. The government encouraged workers to resist, promising to pay all of their wages. This turned out to be the bite from the apple. So starting in May of 1923, the central bank cranked up the money printers. Physical currency doubled in a single month, then it rose 40-fold in three months, then it rose a billion-fold, not a joke, by Christmas. Prices, of course, soared. A loaf of bread cost 200 billion marks, that was roughly double the pre-inflation national debt for a loaf of bread. Germans would rush out on payday to spend the money before it inflated away by the end of the day. Housewives use bundles of marks as firewood. A dollar bought 4.2 trillion marks as American exchange students in Berlin used their food allowances to buy up houses. Unemployment rose to nearly 30%, and even middle-class Germans were selling off their family heirlooms. In the countryside, roving gangs on bicycles beat up farmers, killed their livestock out of spite, and stole food. The hyperinflation only ended when the central bank was forced to stop issuing new money to fund government deficits. The Reichsbank massively reduced new issues, revalued the mark, and it stuck. The hyperinflation was over. So what's next? Like the Federal Reserve, the Reichsbank was independent on paper. But given governments always control central banks, they are never truly independent. That means when government spending takes off, so does inflation. During COVID lockdowns, the Federal Reserve printed nearly $5 trillion to finance federal deficits. At one point, one in three dollars had fresh ink. It delivered what it always does, out-of-control inflation, with deficits now once again threatening to restart the money printers. So what is the solution? Simple. Separation of state and money. Individuals only strike money that holds its value. Otherwise, people will not accept it, whether it's gold or Bitcoin. Only the state can hyperinflate, and as long as the state controls the money, it is always a catastrophe waiting to happen. Once government controls the money, we all know how the book ends. It's just a question of when. In yesterday's newsletter, I talked about how government spending drives hyperinflation using the famous example of Weimar Germany in the 1920s. Today, I'll talk about a much more recent hyperinflation, Argentina. The country is undergoing its fifth hyperinflation since 1975, currently running at 143% per year. That was, of course, a big reason for libertarian radical Javier Malay's win in Argentina's presidential election last week. Setting the stage, 100 years ago, Argentina was one of the richest countries in the world. The peso was gold-backed, and Argentina was a main exporter of beef using the newly invented refrigerated ship called a reefer. 
its per capita GDP was higher than Austria, Italy, or former colonial master Spain. This all changed starting with the election of socialists during World War I. Like American progressives, they passed laws controlling factories and working hours, shutting women out of work. They established government schooling and nationalized energy and transportation, the commanding heights of the economy. Once the Great Depression hit, they had the excuse to ditch the gold standard and launch a government industrial policy that, like all socialists, backfired. Despite a near 50% devaluation of the peso, making their beef cheap, agricultural output plunged, leading to an economic crisis. This opened the door for a military coup by fascist sympathizers, including Juan Perón, and backed by Standard Oil Thank You Exxon. The coup was initially welcomed by large crowds in Buenos Aires, but the National Socialists governed little better than the regular socialists, squeezing business and spending enormous amounts of money. For the next 44 years, Argentina was ruled by socialist generals, espousing social justice, inflating the currency, promoting union takeovers, and putting regulations on small businesses that wrecked the middle class. Argentina went from one of the richest countries in the world to perennial basket case. The peso went from 2.4 per dollar to 350 per dollar by 1969, the first in a series of hyperinflations. In 1970, the peso was restored, then quickly lost 99.9% of its value again. It reset again in 81, lost 95%, again in 83, lost 98%, 1985, lost 99.9 again. Finally, in 1992, Carlos Menem restored the peso to dollar parity. It actually held up for a while, about 10 years. I was living in Argentina back then. I was thrilled to pay a taxi in pesos and get dollars back in change. I thought maybe Argentina was out of the woods. Alas, it was not. The socialists came back. They got back to work, dropping the peso by 92%, then accelerating back to hyperinflation under the current Peronist. So what is next? Washington is following the Argentina plan just as fast as his grubby little paws can vote new spending. In fact, our current $2 trillion deficit is almost twice in terms of GDP what it is in Argentina. So we are going even faster than the original. Unfortunately, it took decades for Argentinians to vote for change because that same money printing pays cronies, government workers, and welfare recipients, all of whom vote. Almost a third of Argentinians work for the government, another third are on welfare. America is actually getting close, with about one in five Americans working for the government, and 30% also getting welfare. Toss in cronies, and things have to get really bad before enough will vote for change. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox, and visit petersanons.com for all the videos, archives, and fresh articles about economics and freedom. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.